0: Hi, everyone. Before we get started, I want to let you know about a new show also out from Sonos Sound System called Call and Response, hosted by blues musician Adia Victoria. She is great and one of my favorite people to talk music and blues and America with and is also a fantastic writer and thinker. So I recommend pulling up the conversation that just came out with jazz legend Kamazi Washington, which you can listen to on Sonos, Mixcloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Object of Sound from Sonos, the show where we bring you in tune with the music that shapes our culture. When music lives in the air, it's one thing, but when you know the undercurrents and the ideas that went into a song, when you can feel its weight, it becomes more meaningful. I'm Hanif Abdurraqib, a poet and cultural critic, and I'll be your guide as we seek a deeper way of listening. This week's episode is a special one. It is the last episode of season one of Object of Sound, but don't worry, we'll be coming back for season two on June 18th after a short break. But be on the lookout. We may do some special projects in between just to keep your attention. So stay tuned. When Bill Withers was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2015, I remember a few different headlines that read things like, former aircraft mechanic Bill Withers inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I remember... People feeling away about those headlines, but I actually remember having a bit of affection for them because it honored the full life of Bill Withers, who was very proud of the work he did as an aircraft mechanic well into his 30s before he became a quote unquote professional singer. Just do what you do and do it good. When he was at that job as a mechanic, he would sing on the job. And on his way to and from work, he would hum songs and he would whistle songs. Bill Withers was always a singer, even when he wasn't being paid to sing. Much like I was still a writer in the times when I would scribble things down on a napkin or on a receipt while working a serving job. Or when I would type things in my phone doing door-to-door sales so I could have them for later and flesh them out in the wee hours of the night after I did the job that was paying my bills at the time. People are more than what they get paid to do. They're more than what they produce for others. And that even stands true if you are someone who creates for a living. I am a writer who has no real technical training, quote unquote, in writing, who didn't go to school for it, who is not interested in going to school for it, who kind of felt my way around understanding writing on my own terms while doing a bunch of other things that were not writing. And through those other things, finding a better and more thoughtful and deeper connection with the world around me and the people in it. And so I think a lot about folks like Bill Withers or like Maya Angelou who honed their craft or happily took part in their craft while doing things that that paid the bills. My guest today also lived many lives and worked many jobs before she got to be known for her artistic work. And during this past year, she's been able to return home and seek out all the ways she can be a person outside of what she produces for the public. Brittany Howard is a Grammy award-winning singer, songwriter, and musician. She got her start as a lead vocalist of Alabama Shakes, but over the past couple years has ventured on her own journey as a soloist with the release of her album, Jamie. She's also, for me, one of the great live performers of her era and one of the most fascinating guitar players of her time. She blends this kind of freeform sensibility with a real understanding of what a song and an audience needs, which makes her stunning to watch and stunning to listen to. I got to talk with Brittany about the many jobs she's held before she became a full-time musician and how that labor impacts her creative work today. We talk about being a self-taught artist, how she learned to play guitar, and our shared love of rhythm sections. Together, we created a playlist of the songs that got us through our day jobs. And I'll wrap today's episode with a reflection on the first season of the podcast and a look ahead to the second season. Hey, Brittany. How are you doing?
1: Hey, Hanif. I'm good.
0: It's good to meet you and good to see you. And, and how have you been holding up? The, how have the months been treating you?
1: You know, for me, pretty good. I haven't been home this long in like 10 years. So yeah. uh, it's been new. It's been different. It's uh, I've been enjoying it, to be honest with you. I miss playing and I miss my band. and I'm, I miss everybody, you know, on the road. And, but uh, besides that, it's like I've I kind of just been finding new things to do.
0: Wait, what are the? Will you tell me a couple of new things? I I will say I will offer up mine first. I've gotten into puzzles, okay. Though I'm not particularly good at them, uh-huh. I just like having them. And so i my around my house right now. I got like three puzzles in various stages of completion, just littering the home. Huh? What
1: is it about puzzles?
0: I think that they're time consuming, and I was told they would be calming. Okay. Though they have mostly only been time consuming and not okay. necessarily calming. Yeah, kind of infuriating. Yeah.
1: Well, I found uh fishing. I've been fishing a lot. Really? I mean I done yeah, I done messed around, kinda started a whole other career during during coronavirus. My <laughs> her on fishing shows and uh you know what I'm saying? Like I just messed around, did the whole thing. So I've been fishing. Uh I've been working on my recording studio, I've been building a recording studio in, in my backyard. I've been making t-shirts, that's a hobby. Cooking a bunch, you know. I didn't I didn't get into bread, but I got into like casseroles and stuff. So <laughs>
0: With the fish, are you like a catch and release person or are you, are you like cooking the fish you catch?
1: No, I don't even eat fish. I just, I just catch and release them. I just, you know, the whole thing with me is like it's something me and my dad used to do when, when I was little and, uh, you know, just rediscovered it and got super into it, like fly fishing and everything. And for me, it's just being outside, being where my cell phone don't work, being um, where I feel like, you know, mankind is supposed to naturally be. And to me, that's really, uh, really fulfilling.
0: There's a thing that we kind of share, though obviously in different ways, is that, you know, I'm not like a quote unquote classically trained writer, or I'm not someone who went to school for writing and I just worked while I kind of learned my way towards being a large scare quotes professional writer. I like worked a lot of different jobs. And I was interested in your path because you also are someone who worked a lot of different jobs that were not the work of a musician, although you were still a musician because you were making music. And I was interested in that and interested in diving into that corner of your world and life and how it has impacted the nature with which you take to music making now.
1: Yeah. Okay. Let's, do, <laughs> let's get into that then.
0: Can you like summarize some of your jobs? You don't have to tell me all of them, but will you give me the rundown? Yeah, you want my resume? Yeah. Can I get the resume? All right.
1: First job I worked at Kroger, lived across the street from it. I set up my first job bagging groceries, started flipping pizzas. Then I started uh, working at Cracker Barrel, and then I uh, started working at Old Time Pottery. Then I sold some cars for a little bit, did a little landscaping, did a little uh, outdoor janitorial work. Then eventually I got an opportunity to work for the post office. And to me, I thought that that was going to be uh, my career. That was my shot at making a good living. So I was like pretty proud. To work for the post office and have something going for me.
0: So, before circling back to the post office, I also worked at Cracker Barrel. I'm um, interested. How long did you last at Cracker Barrel?
1: <laughs> I, you know, I don't even remember. Like, to be honest with you, I heard that if you refer someone, you get a referral check, but they had to work there for like 90 days. So, probably 90 days, to be honest yep. with you. <laughs> I needed that money. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Wasn't,
0: wasn't my favorite job. I also remember that deal. I remember that deal, and someone put me on and was like, You can't quit because if you quit, I yes. won't get this check. I won't get my check. Yep. I was like, Oh, man. Like, I love looking out for my people, but this is terrible. All respect to Cracker Barrel, I guess. But I mean, yeah. Uh, but, terrible time.
1: It, you know, honestly, it's my least favorite job I've ever had. And I used to pick up like dead animals off the road. So, you know, I didn't <laughs> like Cracker Barrel. I didn't like working for Cracker Barrel, but I do like their hash brown casserole. So, word up.
0: I do. <laughs> yeah. What did you do at the post office? What were you like in the streets delivering mail?
1: Yeah, I'm talking about rain, snow, tornado. I'm out there delivering mail. I was a rural mail carrier. so that's the kind of mail carrier where they don't give you a truck. you gotta like provide your own vehicle. And basically they stick you out there on different routes every day. You just gotta get with the program real quick. And I was doing that uh, right before I was able to uh, start touring and then I got to quit my job.
0: Yeah, the, I've I've read that you would, like, go from working these long post office shifts immediately to practicing with Alabama Shakes.
1: Yeah, yeah. Did
0: that also feel like—did Like, were, did, like did it feel like going from one job to another job, or did it feel like I'm leaving my job and I'm going to have fun?
1: No, nah, to me, it was like that was the uh, spot—that was the bright spot in my life completely. My bright spot was going to practice Tuesdays and Thursdays, and I would rush to get back from work so I could show up on time. And I was like, I mean, that's what I lived for, was doing that. And every once in a while, we get to have a show. And I'd be out to like 3 a.m., you know, not partying or nothing, just doing my job, playing them songs, four-hour sets. And then we'd load up. By the time I got home, it was 3 a.m., wake up at 6, go to work. You know, that's how it was.
0: I remember when I realized I could quit like my 9 to 5 life. And it was when I had, where well, i saved up enough money to pay rent for a year. And I was like, I gotta, I can leave my job. Whoa. I know, I can tell you by your face, you're like, what does that even mean? But
1: no, I'm just like, wow, you're so responsible. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, it's a thing where, like, you know, if you're a writer, it's much more fleeting. Well, I mean, I think if you're a creative person at all, it's like a fleeting thing. So I was like, I can't just leave my job. I got to be able to like pay my rent for as long as you know, so I could try a thing, mm-hmm. and if it doesn't work out, then I'll like find another job that isn't this. When Did you have that breakthrough moment with Alabama Shakes where you're like, I could maybe quit my job?
1: Oh, man. I remember finding some management, you know, finally. Having the management and then being like, are y'all interested in going on a tour? I'm like, yeah. And they were like, look, to be honest with you, you're not going to be able to keep your day jobs and do this. And I was like, all right, I'll quit right now. And they're like, (laughs) hold up. (laughs) They're like, hold up, wait two weeks or something. And I'm like, I'll call them right now. I'll quit right now today. You know what I mean? And, like, for me, it was easy. It was an easy choice. Like, you know, I was like, this is my opportunity. I'm going to throw everything I have at it. Because if I don't, you know, this could fall through. And this is my one chance. So I was ready to go. Uh, you know, I wasn't responsible like you were. Like, let me think about how I'm going to pay my rent stuff. I was just like,
0: you know, I'll live on these streets. That's a better way to go, though, I think. I was Maybe. too tentative. I was like, wait, you know, I was like, I was like crunching numbers at calculators and shit. Like, I think yeah. I, if I were just like... I'm ready to perhaps just leave this job I hate.
1: Yeah. And I had a hard time, you know, where, you know, some people can just, like, work for a company and they're just like, oh, I love my coworkers and I love my car and all this stuff. And for me, it was just painful working for somebody else. I was just like, man, what does it even mean? What are we even doing?
0: It, it was hurting me. Yeah. And I, I think about um, particularly, like, Black folks and Black creatives, I think about folks like Bill Withers, mm-hmm. who like just worked well into his thirties, making aircraft toilets and whatnot. And like <laughs> how how there was kind of a working class nature to how he went about his business as both a vocalist and a just a person in the world. Even when he was like on the BBC, you mm-hmm. know, it mm-hmm. felt like he was showing up, punch a clock, just like a plain t-shirt. He was never too flashy. Mm-hmm. And I kind of admired that and was wondering if you have any thoughts. Do you feel like, there are things kind of steeped into your being uh around work and labor that inform your your work in a band or as a solo artist, for better or worse.
1: I mean, yeah. First and foremost when it comes to me working, is like uh, you gotta have some good character. You know, I'm not trying to step on nobody else to get where I need to go. Right. That's important to me. It's always been important to me and to my band to work with people who have integrity and be surrounded by people I respect. So that's first and foremost. Um I didn't have that opportunity when I was working for someone else, but now that I work for myself, that's important. Um, I go through with it. I like to work hard. I like building something. That means a lot to me. Uh, definitely, definitely came from a place where you gotta, you gotta work. Yeah. You know, now that I get to be a creative person full time, I kind of approach it like I walk into my studio, walk into my writing room, and I say, "What? What's something I don't know about yet?" see if that sparks me, see if that interests me, lights me up. Because if I start doing stuff that I already know all about, I don't know, it's, it's, it's kind of boring. Uh, why am I doing it?
0: Right, right. To pivot ever so gently, I I wanted to talk about one of my favorite musical things of last year, when you dropped the Funkadelic cover.
1: Mm-hmm, yeah.
0: love Funkadelic. I love George Clinton. I mean, I'm from Ohio, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, the birthplace of funk. And so I, I just have a really intense relationship with Funkadelic. And to hear your very real transformation of that song was illuminating for me and kind of made me think about the kind of sonic toolbox that you work within and how varied it is. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about how you came to that song and what what made you take that song on, and, and and what challenges or joys you found in taking it on?
1: I'm a huge Funkadelic fan. Um, when I was young, my dad had a tow truck business, and on Fridays, I'd have to ride with him because there wasn't nobody there to watch me. So I'd ride in his tow truck, and we'd tune into the radio, and on the radio on Fridays, they had Funky Fridays. And so we were listening to the Gap Band and Funkadelic and, you know, Parliament and George Clinton's own personal hits and, uh, you know... All kinds of funky music. Prince would come on there and my daddy tell me all about Prince and you know, what happened to his school when Prince came out and how everybody all of a sudden had jerry curls and wore <laughs> blouses and you know what I'm saying? And yeah. I, I love that I love spending time with my pops that way. So for me, funk just had like a from the get-go, I was like, oh, this is a very special kind of music. This is music me and my dad love. This is the music that makes you dance. Um, this is this is the pinnacle. You know, that's what I thought when I was little, you know. I didn't know all the different types of music that there were. But to me, funk was like, if you can make that music, then uh, everybody's gonna like you. Uh, so it started there. And, uh, you know, when I think about rhythm sections, I it goes back to James Brown. You know, yes. when I think about rhythm sections, that's what I'm about. I love a good rhythm section. Always on the hunt for a good rhythm section. To me, those are the superstars, you know, the bass player, the drummer, who were they? Uh, and then just go into that song with Funkadelic, that drum beat, that bass mm-hmm. line, the way it hits. And then the way, they took something that could seem simple. But, you know, if you break it down, that can be simple. But then they put all these sonic things on it to make it kind of kooky and kind of far out. And I've always just been curious, like, what are they doing to the drum set here? What is that? Uh what why how did they manipulate this bass sound? Why does it sound like that? And to me, you know, the song we perform was just, it's still happening, you know, socially. It's still what's going on socially. And I could write a song talking about that, but what's better just to uh, to do a song that I already know is going to hit it, like, dead on? I love performing that song live when we could play it live and everybody turns up. So everybody knows what it is. So that's how it came to me.
0: I was going to demonstrate some restraint and and not, because once you started talking about rhythm sections, I was like, this is my language because I am someone who is obsessed with the rhythm section and I think, I mean, it's always just like undervalued criminally, you know?
1: And that's the thing about funk to me. It's all about the feeling of it. If you don't have the right feeling, then uh, you got too much extra cheese. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Yes. Yeah, you got to have the right feeling. Don't do too much just because you can do so much. Like, hold the cheese, please. And, Get right down to it, which is all about the rhythm section. What's the drum and bass doing? Because, I mean, I've heard a lot of funky bands, right? They seem to be doing all the right stuff. But, like, what's your cheese factor? (laughs) (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Are you slapping cheese between the drum and bass? Don't do
0: that. (laughs) Will you tell me some of your, and this doesn't have to just be funk bands, but ones that come to mind, some of your favorite rhythm sections?
1: I'm going to go with somebody current right now that I think is super dope. Wolfpack it's super dope right
0: now
1: mm, yeah that's a good ass rhythm section it mm-hmm. is uh, also somebody else recent right now uh, Bad Bad Not Good
0: They pretty slick, pretty slick,
1: man. I like
0: that. I want to hear about how you learned to play guitar and who you learned from or you self-taught. I'm just so interested in the, in the very like n- the very granular nuances of your guitar playing, both like tone and your kind of ability to shift sound through from song to song or from moment to moment. There's a real versatility I hear. Uh if I'm doing close listening, but even if I'm not, that really makes you curious about your, your guitar journey.
1: Thanks, man. You know, I feel like I don't get enough guitar questions. It's funny. <laughs> really? You do get guitar uh, questions? I don't get enough.
0: I feel like I should have made this whole <laughs> interview guitar questions, and I didn't because I wanted to talk about other things. Well, let's go off the dome. Let's see.
1: From the beginning, the first instrument that I played was uh, drums. I'm a, I'm a drummer in my soul. Uh, love drums. Then I went to bass. Loved the bass. Started playing when I was 11. Started making kids join my band. You know, I didn't have a lot of kids to choose from that wanted to play instruments and write songs. So, like, if I liked the kid, I'd just be like, all right, I'm going to teach you how to play bass and you'll be the bass player. And they're like, oh, okay. And then, you know, I was trying to be in bands all the time. That was like my dream. So I had to write some songs. So then I had to play the guitar. The way I taught myself was just through my ear, listening. Uh, in the beginning, my mom used to would buy me like guitar. Maybe I'd get a guitar player magazine like once every two months or something. You know what I mean? Like $15 a piece or something back then, $10 or something. And then I'd look in the back at the tablature, and I started putting together. Oh, this is a string. This is the fifth fret. Okay, okay. And I started learning what I could there. Once I started making power chords, I was just like starting to write songs. And then... Playing simple music, like punk music and stuff, started learning that because that was a lot of power chords. I could learn that. And then from there, I would listen to songs really closely, try to pick them out. You know, like James Brown songs and stuff like that. Whatever. Whatever I liked, you know. Never knew how to read music. Still don't know how to read music. Just by ear. And, you know, that has its pros and cons. Mm-hmm. We know, when Alabama Shakes first started, we wanted to play a show anywhere. It was so hard to get a show. Nobody wanted original music, so we'd have to put together a bunch of cover songs, and then we sprinkle in our music here and there. Uh, so I'm playing Led Zeppelin, I'm playing Black Sabbath, I'm playing these solos and stuff. And at the time, there weren't a lot of female guitar players highlighted, especially not female black guitar players of course, I know they existed, but I'm just saying where I was playing in the southeast, I was like nobody had ever seen it before. You know, they thought I was going to get up there and sound like Aretha Franklin or something, but that's not what I did. I got up there and I was singing, "Let that be rock," and I'm playing the solo, <laughs> and people were like, "What the? F- is this? What is going on?" And you know, we we were we, we looked we all looked different. We all looked like we came from a different background. We Looks, we looked different. People didn't know what to expect. And I just kept learning them guitar parts because, man, honestly, that was getting us gigs. I was like, whatever. You know, I'm going to sharpen up these solos and uh, let's get out there and play uh, some Black Sabbath for them next time. They ain't going to expect that. Uh, So that was kind of my journey, just learning them songs
0: so we can can get them gigs. It's so funny that you talked about feeling and being led by emotion because I do think your play— I'm asking these questions like on my guitar— expert and I am not, I just love listening to your music, but your play is so guided by feeling Oh yeah, where it seems like, especially live. I mean, of course, you know, I've seen you live a couple of times and it does seem like you're kind of like mapping out where to go next in the solo space, particularly like you're mapping it out as you're playing it, depending on, on feeling. And that's maybe not how it goes, but that's how it feels and how it, how it appears to a listener. And, um, there's something kind of captivating about that. Uh, have you ever seen Stevie Wonder live? Yeah. I feel like he's in a similar way where, like, so much of his, like, the musical world he builds mm-hmm. is based on this real time relationship with sound and what a song needs and where a song needs to go. Mm-hmm. Um, how much of that, of your playing, is infor- particularly live playing, is informed by, like, real time rapid decision making based off of what a song needs?
1: I mean, I'm just as much on the edge in my seat as anybody in the audience. I don't know. Sometimes I even, I hit old bonky note, but you know, you just like Jimmy Hendrix said, you just bend that note. Bend it, yeah. Or yeah. like Miles Davis said, hit it twice. It was on <laughs> purpose if you hit it twice. So, uh, I, you know, I kind of got that principle. It's, it's all feel, uh, and that makes it fun and exciting for me. And also, just the kind of player that I am, and I don't have a lot of technical chops. It's just like, oh, this sounds cool to me, and then you play it that way.
0: I love that. So my last thing here is that every week on the show, I ask the guests to help me make a playlist that we add at the end of the show. And I I really wanted to hear from you some songs because we like touched on work a little bit. I was someone who, when doing the jobs that were like manual labor for me, I always had to have headphones in because I always just needed a soundtrack to propel me through the workday. And so I was wondering if you could give me a few songs that you wish you had back when you were needing to be propelled through workdays in the past.
1: For sure. I mean, when I was working, I remember particularly I was working for, uh, it was a porter business. So what you would do is you go to commercial properties and you drive a sweeper truck or you get a blower or you pick up the cigarette butts off the ground. You'd empty their trash cans. You know, that was like the job. And so all I was doing all day was listening to music or writing music. And I remember at the time I was listening to uh, a lot of dap tone stuff. Sharon Jones, the Dap Kings. whole record man I would just play that whole record then also during that time I was going through like listening to a lot of James Brown just like a lot of 45 stuff Cold Sweat mm. you know what I'm saying yeah one more
0: time. Time. A cold sweat.
1: I was also listening to I don't know do you know who Louis Prima is
0: oh absolutely
1: like Louis Prima is like one of my favorite performers like yeah. listen to a lot of Louis Prima you got to throw him on the list.
0: Oh, Murray. Oh, Murray. Oh, Murray. Oh, Murray. In your arms, I'm longing to be. Longing to be. Baby. Baby. Tell me you love me.
1: I listen to a lot of Queen, too. Oh, uh, Queen, Freddie Mercury sang this song in one take. It's called Prophet's Song. Mm-hmm. It's, it's insane. The song is crazy.
0: Queen is funny because recently I got I got I got in a little trouble, not real trouble, but I had mentioned that it felt to me, and it's funny because someone played prophets for me when I when I said this. I mentioned that Queen, you know, and I, I've listened to Queen's albums a lot, a lot of times, and a lot of them just don't land for me, but their singles always do. Big singles band. I was less sold on them as an albums band. And one of my friends is like, "Listen, you're just not listening to the albums, right?" Um, and then they played they played Sheer Heart Attack for me. All the way through. And I was like, maybe I, maybe I actually need to think about Queen, revisit them as an album's band, and be a little more open to it.
1: I was listening to that. I was getting into that. I was just kind of exploring music that I had missed. And at the time, I didn't know a whole, whole, whole bunch about like Black Sabbath or Led Zeppelin. That was kind of new for me. So I was diving into that. And I was like, oh, there's something here. Now, you know, Zep, they got some funky songs. You know what I'm saying? They got some funky songs. We used to cover The Crunch. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> ah, that's funky. I this
0: this has been great, uh, Brittany Howard. Thank you for joining me and talking about work and about funk and uh, and about guitar. I'm so you know. Of your many talents, your guitar playing is so captivating to me as someone who also learned most of my skills outside of the quote unquote technical realm. Mm. I'm really Mm. always amazed by performers and, and makers who are guided by feeling as I am. And so thank you for joining me. This is a real pleasure.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Be well. Thank you so much. Brittany Howard's newest album is Jamie and it is out now. And now for a final thought. I grew up in a college town in the 90s, which meant that I kind of grew up at the height of college radio in a city where college radio dominated the airwaves at Ohio State. And what I always loved about the college radio DJ was that everyone listening was kind of at the mercy of whatever their sonic pleasures were there was kind of no format or strict grounding principles like there were with more corporate radio stations if a person wanted to play Allison Chains and then play Fuji's that's just what you got that is kind of the base of my music listening experience was and I always 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 had the dream of being a college radio DJ and when I was approached to do object of sound it felt to me like a dream come true because it was an opportunity to at least take a little corner of that desire and build it into something more communal. I think that like all productive, emotional, social movements, if we reciprocate and rely on each other for shared knowledge, we grow as people. And so I want to say that this has been Uh, a really wonderful journey through this first season. For me, someone who has had to kind of learn to come into my own as an interviewer and allow my excitements to, to kind of shine through without any reservation or anxieties. Thank you to the producers for working so hard to make this show sound good. And I hope that it has been a wonderful journey for you too. As a listener, I have enjoyed hearing from you all through emails or through Instagram or through Twitter. It feels like we're really building a community of excited listeners, and um, I've loved especially making playlists and talking through them. It feels like I have my own little corner of a college radio show. And uh, coming back for season two, I hope that we can continue this process, and I hope that with any luck, uh, we all become better, more eager listeners, and more willing to share what we love about what we're listening to. Season two will be back June 18th, so you get a month and a half break to to think about tunes and make some playlists and uh, keep an eye out for us. We will be back to help carry you through the summer and I can't wait. This has been of Sound from Sonos. Thank you to our guest this week, Brittany Howard. To hear all the music and the full version of this show, listen on Sonos Radio or find us at Mixcloud.com slash Sonos. And while you're there, check out some of the other great shows on Sonos, including the first episode of a new series, Always Read the Label, hosted by Karis Matthews. Each episode will tell a potted history of an iconic record label and shines a spotlight on some of the incredible artists that have been associated with them. Also, this week on Radio Hour, Ghostface Killer who just launched a new curated station, Blue and Cream, on Sonos Radio HD. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. If you love this show, rate it and share it with your friends. Also, tell us what you like about the show and what you're listening to. We're at objectofsound at sonos.com. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Sonos Radio. This show is produced by Work by Work, Scott Newman, Gemma Rose Brown, Babette Thomas, and by me, Hanif Abdurraqib. The show is mixed by Sam Bear and Josh Hahn. Extra gratitude to Joe Dawson and Saida Blount at Sonos. I'm always talking about music online on Instagram and Twitter at Neef Muhammad. Thank you for listening.